So looking at all of these um, difficulties, how is it that these people come to find themselves in the sights of the criminal law more often than, than other people? Okay, well, I mean, again, that, that's a big question and every case is different and uh, there, there, there is not really one simple answer for, uh, for that. But um, the, main, the main, typically what you will find is a person who has, for example, a developmental disability might have low IQ, they might have low insight, they might be easily led by unscrupulous peers and they might, become, uh, might be, by virtue of those characteristics, uh, particularly vulnerable to exploitation. Um, damage to the frontal lobes of the brain, uh, which we spoke about before, in particular damage to the orbitofrontal areas of the brain, that, that part of the brain that sits right above the eyes, for example. It's a bit like driving a car without the brakes. The individual has a reduced ability to suppress uh, emotional responses. Uh, they will have difficulty controlling their, their emotions and their anger. They might be very quick to fly off the handle. Um, they will characteristically engage in emotionally reactive violence. Um, and they're much more likely to have substance use issues uh, because they're less able to control and manage their behavior, uh, which further complicates their behavior. Talk to me about substance use issues and uh, neuropsychological conditions. Well, a person who is compromised you know, in, with, um, you know, in that part of the brain that um, I was speaking about before, so the orbitofrontal area of the brain, that area of the brain that mediates in those high level human uh, uh, behaviors such as uh, planning, reasoning, um, consequential thinking, uh, abstract reasoning and so on, um, is less likely to be able to manage their, their substance use because they, they don't have the brakes on the car to stop the car from moving when they're getting into trouble when they're driving, if that kind of makes sense. So uh, they're less able to, to monitor their behavior, to slow down their behavior, to regulate their behavior, to stop using the substances that are, that are contributing to the, the, the chaos of their life. And a person who is getting older and um, might be seeing the signs of dementia, what, what's gonna happen there? Well, typically with aging and dementias, uh, people uh, lose their, um, not only their, their memory, but they, uh, and there are different types of dementias with uh, uh, that, that, that uh, impact on particular areas of cognition at different stages um, of the disease process. Um, but ultimately, all, all, um, all neurodegenerative disorders uh, lead to reduced, inhibit, reduced inhibition and poor judgment, and that can be particularly relevant in older populations in terms of fitness to plead, fitness to you know, participate in the trial, and those kinds of legal issues. What sort of crimes can that lead to? Well, um, may not necessarily lead to a crime, but uh, what, it, um, is, what it does do is um, cast a very different light on the, um, on, the, on the trial process for that individual. If a person is compromised intellectually or cognitively because of a neurodegenerative disorder, they may not uh, be able to participate in the trial in the same way that a person without a neurodegenerative disorder can. And obviously that's a question for the, the judge or the trier of fact to establish if a person is fit or not. Uh, but um, it can, it can, you know, I will typically see uh, people aged in their 60s, 70s and 80s who have been charged with historical sex offences uh, and the solicitor will want to know if that person um, or the solicitor may be concerned rather um, that the person has um, some type of dementia 
uh, the, the, their client might be complaining that they don't remember what happened or they might have difficulty getting instructions from their client and they um, might need a neuropsychologist and a psychiatrist perhaps uh, to help them determine if the person is um, suffering from some type of neurodegenerative disorder that is impacting on their fitness. So when a, a lawyer um, picks up a client and starts talking to them, what, what sorts of signs and symptoms can they look for to decide whether they need a, a psychologist or a neuropsychologist to examine their client? Mm -hmm. Okay, I mean that's obviously that's a really important question. Um, I would the first thing I would uh, I would look for as a solicitor is is there a history of abnormal development during childhood? Is, was there anything in their in in their client's childhood that that might raise alarm bells about uh, abnormal neurological development? So one of the, the types of questions that we can ask there, and as a neuropsychologist, I would typically ask is was the birth normal? Uh, were they? What do you mean? What's the birth normal? Okay, well, were they, was, uh, did they, were they born at 40 weeks? That's a normal gestational period. Were they born prematurely? Were they low birth weight? Uh, was the mother, um, were they malnourished during the mother's pregnancy? Did the and, mother the, and the solicitor can ask these questions? Why not? You ask any question you want to get the information that you need to represent your client. You're no different from the psychologist mm. in that regard. All right, so about the birth, and then what else? Well... Birth complications are a huge predictor of criminal behavior later in life, just so you know. Um, if you're particularly interested, read The Anatomy of Violence, um, and it is a classic text in forensic neuropsychology. The Anatomy of Violence provides a lot of very, very compelling evidence that um, early birth complications um, are a very strong predictor of criminal behavior and violent behavior later in life. And, and the thing and the information to extrapolate from that finding or to deduce from that finding is that um, birth complications or the hypothesis to draw is that birth complications interfere with normal neurological development, that is normal development of the brain, and which then later lead on to uh, abnormal and antisocial and violent behaviour later in life. So what questions would a solicitor ask of the client or the, the client's mother mm -hmm. about the birth? Okay, was, was the birth normal? Did you ask the, ask the mother, do you use drugs or alcohol during pregnancy? Did you have a normal birth? Was it caesarean? Was it um, um, full gestation? Uh, following birth, were there any complications? Was the child healthy? Uh, pre postnatally or did the child require any hospitalization postnatally what were the developmental milestones like did they meet their normal developmental milestones did the child have any learning difficulties at school if so what were they how severe were they were there any childhood diagnoses of developmental disorders so that's how I'd start what sort of questions are a red flag or what answers are a red flag um, well substance use during pregnancy is a big one Absolute big one. Um, um, uh, the uh, uh, prenatal and postnatal environments are hugely important. So if a child um, has possibly been uh, malnourished or undernourished um, during those early developmental years, the brain isn't um, the, the brain is likely not to have developed optimally during that stage. Um, also, 
Um, parental attachment is really important. We haven't really spoken about personality yet, but personality is underpinned by neurological development. And um, when children are raised in uh, very stressful and chaotic family environments, uh, the brain usually does not develop normally, and that is because um, high levels of adrenaline and cortisol interfere. What's cortisol? Cortisol is a hormone, uh, it's a stress hormone that is released uh, through the adrenal glands uh, and that uh, during times of stress, uh, children who are subject to chaotic and non-nurturing and um, uh, violent um, home environments um, will tend to uh, produce high levels of cortisol uh, which interfere with brain development and that can interfere with pers uh, the, the shaping of their personality later in life. So um, I would say that is one of the most common presentations that I see in people with antisocial personality disorder for example. The reason that the hallmarks of antisocial personality disorder are disinhibition, um, um, in, uh, um, disinhibition um, uh, impulsivity um, failure to think through the consequences of their actions, risk-taking behaviours, and more often than not, you can. It is possible to trace those behaviours back to uh, um, a very chaotic uh, developmental periods in their life, and um, likely um, that stress hormone cortisol, which interferes with um, brain development during those developmental years. So those are some of the. Uh prenatal and postnatal conditions. What about education? Is there, are there questions about education that practitioners can ask? Well, education is really, um, kids that come from chaotic, most of the people that we see uh, criminally, um, um, I would argue, uh, have very little in the way of education and opportunity. Uh, they come from impoverished environments. Um, and so um, they are very much disadvantaged in that way. Um, that um, I think is a separate issue from um, uh, the neuropsychological issues that we have been speaking about. I think it's a very relevant issue um, in um, understanding um, the person's behaviour in a, in a fuller context, but I don't think it's necessarily a neurological issue. Having said that, people or children who are neurologically compromised with developmental disorders are not going to perform well at school, they're going to have educational difficulties, they're going to leave school early and they're going to struggle to function in the community after that and that will predispose them towards engaging in criminal activity. So what sort of questions can we ask about performance at school? Did you, were you in special classes? Special classes, that's a, that's a very good question to ask. Did you have a repeat a year? Did you ever receive extra repeat learning assistance? Where you, did you learn to read or write? Well, what's reading and writing important towards what you're looking at? Well, reading and writing is probably the, the most robust measure of a person's uh, neurological functioning in the classroom. Mm. If, a if a child can't read and write, um, I mean, there can be many reasons for that. They may be neurological or not. Um, very, very often, um, a, a kid might be diagnosed with having dyslexia because they failed to acquire, you know, the, the normal um, level of... Um, um, reading and uh, reading um, skills, um, but uh, that might not, uh, but that might may not have anything to do with their neurological development. May simply be a, a disinterest or a lack of engagement in schooling. Um, but it is also very possible that the reason why a child has failed to learn how to read and write is because 
of um, developmental factors that have impacted on their neurological development during that developmental period. And special classes? Special classes is, is a good one, but lots of kids who uh, have behavioural difficulties. I saw two kids yesterday that were 14 and had ADHD and ODD, which is Oppositional Defiant Disorder. Um, they were really bright. They were super intelligent. They were scoring. They scored in the high average range of intellectual functioning, but their reading and writing and mathematics achievement abilities, uh, achievement abilities as opposed to cognition, were um, way, way, way below what you would predict given the quality of their cognition and intellectual functioning. Um, and the reason for that was because of their, their developmental ADHD disorder, because that was interfering with um, their ability to, to engage in learning at school and to um, acquire skills that were commensurate, if you like, with the level or the quality of their intellectual and cognitive functioning. So what sort of questions should practitioners be asking about a child's education? Well, how far did they go at school? What did they, how well did they go at school? Did they have, what, what subjects did they like? What subjects were they good at? What subjects did they not like? What subjects were they not so good at? As I mentioned before, did they ever repeat? Did they require extra learning assistance? Do they have functional reading and writing skills? Then, in relation to acquired brain injury, what sort of questions are good to figure out whether someone's got an acquired brain injury? Uh, well, uh, acquired brain injuries, can, as I mentioned before, can occur during the developmental period. So did anything happen to you that might have affected the, um, uh, the health of your brain? Yeah, that's probably how I'd couch it. Um, and Besides smoking cannabis. Beside, well, yeah, you'd look at you'd look at um, you'd look at substance use. That's a big one, especially during that developmental period, because that can have a huge impact on 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 on, on brain development. Um, it does have a huge impact on brain development. The research is clear. There's no question about it. So I'd want to know when they started using drugs, what type of drugs they started using, how much they used, how long they used them for. Really, really, really important. Um, the obvious is. Um, traumatic brain injuries, um, have they ever been knocked unconscious in the fire, in a fight, have they ever been knocked, you know, had a bottle smashed over the head, that kind of thing. But What's significant? Well, well, significant is, is um, how, if, if that did happen to them, if they were in a car accident, did they lose consciousness, did they hit their head, if they did hit their head, how long were they unconscious for? How long is significant? Um, typically, uh, if a person was unconscious for less than 30 minutes, which is a big difference from 24 hours, I wouldn't worry about it. If they were unconscious for up to 24 hours, um, I would want to investigate more. Uh, but certainly if they were unconscious for more than 24 hours, then I would be really concerned. So if I have a client who's charged with doing something in 2019, mm -hmm. and I say, have you ever been knocked unconscious? Mm -hmm and they say yes for 20 minutes. Yeah, wouldn't worry about it. If they said yes, I was in hospital for two weeks, unconscious. Absolutely would worry about it. I would absolutely, that screams for uh, follow-up neuropsychological testing. And why? Uh, because uh, uh, a period of, of unconsciousness uh, associated with uh, a mechanical injury to the brain of that force, um, of a force of the kind that would lead to unconsciousness for two weeks in hospital um, would suggest very strongly 
that there has been damage to the brain. What, what, what sort of effect would that sort of damage to the brain have? Well, you don't know. You're not going to know until you investigate through um, neuropsychological testing. Because that typically, and it depends on, it depends on the um, context and the nature of the injury. For example, if a person ha is involved in, a, has a traumatic brain injury in a car accident, the anatomy of the brain predisposes injury to uh, those parts of the brain, or the anatomy of the skull predisposes um, um, injury to the brain involving the frontal lobes that we spoke about before. So the orbitofrontal area of the brain that is responsible for personality and behavioral self-regulation uh, and impulsivity and all those kinds of things uh, and memory. So the way that the skull is actually anatomically structured, if a person is involved in a car accident, the brain is going to bounce uh, around in the head um, from the impact of that car accident and you can predict with a fair degree of certainty, certainty depending on the severity and the, the period of loss of unconsciousness and period of post-traumatic amnesia, what parts of the brain are going to be affected and to what extent those parts of the brain are going to be affected. When we look at uh, taking history from a client about the, the damage to the brain, are there other red flags that occur, like such as the age of the client? Um, well, uh, Age is always an important consideration in understanding how uh, the impact of an injury might affect um, uh, neurological development, um, especially in, in, if, if a child um, suffers from an injury to the brain, uh, it's going to completely derail the normal, it may completely de derail the normal development of the brain and that requires follow-up investigation. Um, uh, uh, an adult uh, or an, an older adult who um, suffers uh, and injury to the brain will um, have less resilience to and uh, will, will, the prognosis for an older individual who sustains an injury to the brain will be less favorable than the prognosis of, an, of a younger individual who sustains the same injury to the brain simply because they're older, they're less resilient uh, and um, their rate of recovery is going to be a lot slower. You, you spoke of dementia earlier. What, what sort of ages do we worry about that kicking in? Uh, well, the, uh, there are different types of dementias and they have um, uh, different, uh, typically have different uh, onsets um, in terms of um, the age of the individual. The most common is Alzheimer's and you would tip the mean or the average time of onset for Alzheimer's disease is probably around 65. Uh, I think it's something like 1% of the population will have Alzheimer's disease at 65 years of age. 2% of the population will, have Alzheimer's, uh, will develop Alzheimer's disease by the time they're 70, and the figure doubles every five years after that. What are some of the, the uh, signs that we can look for as practitioners to decide whether we need to have the assistance of a neuropsychologist? Okay, well, if you're attempt when you're attempting to get instructions from your client, if you're really struggling to get instructions from your client, there's something going on with that client. I think it's really annoying. Well, no, I mean, lots of people are annoying, but they can still give you instructions. But when, it's, when they're annoying and they still can't give you instructions, that I'd be worried. Mm. Yeah. What, what, what sort of questions can we ask to, to figure out whether they might have a problem? 
well, again, I mean, you look at the history, and we've just spoken about the types of questions that you might ask during a history taking uh, with the client. Um, when you're temp attempting to get specific instructions from your client about um, um, about uh, the case or the particular case, uh, if you're really struggling there, if you're not, if they're not making sense, if you feel that uh, they're not understanding your questions or they're incapable of providing you with the instructions that you need to run your case, uh, there could be uh, a neurological reason for it. So it's a good idea to refer someone for a neuro neuropsychologist report if they uh, if they've got a history of uh, low intellectual functioning. Definitely, yep. If they've got a history of brain injury. Yep. Um, if they've got a history of uh, learning disability? Yep. What, what else? Um, uh, an older client who you suspect may um, be struggling or may be showing signs of a dementia, an evolving dementia. What are those signs, as in they, they don't answer your questions? Confusion, not understanding questions, not being able to articulate a coherent response to your questions, um, just, uh, just a complete uh, vulnerability during a police uh, interview, for example. Uh, if you look, read through the police interview and they're acquiescent in their response style, um, I'd be very concerned about um, uh, possibly... Um, the the client not really understanding what they're being asked during a police interview. What are the other red flags that should say to a lawyer, hey, get this person assessed by a, a neuropsychologist? Yeah, or um, a, neuropsychologist? a neuropsychologist, okay. Again, we go back to neuropsychology being all about um, uh, abnormal brain development or brain injury and how that impacts on behaviour. So if there's any evidence to suggest in the history that the client um, may... Um, have had um, some sort of uh, insult to the brain during adulthood or that their, the development of their brain during that first 18, 18 years of development may have been compromised by some factor, whether it be um, a genetic factor or a factor external to the individual, um, I would um, be seeking a neuropsychological assessment, definitely. And a tumour? How do we figure out if a client's got a tumour? Uh, well, tumours tend to occur, I mean, it depends on the nature of the tumour. Um, most brain cancers in children are, um, are do uh, are what we call primary brain tumours. Uh, so they originate in the brain and they um, are isolated particular areas of the brain. So when removed, once removed, um, if they don't um, reoccur, um, they potentially only really affect that particular area of the brain. Is there a way you can screen your client as to whether they're suffering from some sort of tumour or...? or I mean, th that would be pretty clear in the history. If you, I mean, if, you, if, if, if a client, an adult client comes to you and they have a history of um, um, brain cancer, you'll know about it in, in, in their medical history. Uh, and that may, may or may not be relevant to understanding uh, their offending behaviour. What sort of material helps you as a neuropsychologist um, with your assessment of a person? What, what, what can we help you get? Like hospital records? That's a really good question. When you're working clinically in a hospital, we have the luxury of having access to all the medical records, all the documentation, and so we can use that to sort of piece together uh, a really good picture of what uh, the client's history is, and we can use that information and integrate that information with uh, the work that we do when we see the client. 
uh, we can integrate that information with the test results that we obtain from the client and we have a very comprehensive and well-rounded and robust understanding of what is actually going on with the patient and we can make you know the appropriate recommendations based on on that richness of um, of corroborating information if you like uh, from many different sources what what can we as lawyers do can we get their school records well Forensically, in these in criminal contexts, it's often very, very difficult. It would it would be I would say nine times out of ten we don't have the luxury of, of having access to that that wealth of information to help us understand would the client. Would school records help you? Uh, school records are really important for understanding the developmental history of an individual. So I could find out if what their their grades were like at school whether they saw a counsellor? Yeah, I mean, that, that, that is helpful, uh, but it depends on, it depends on the, the neurological context of the, of the particular case that you're working on. I mean, let's face it, Will, most of the people that we see are not um, particularly strong, have not partic been particularly strong performers at mm. school. But if they've gone into special classes in school, they've they gone, might have been assessed for that? Absolutely, uh, and that's uh, really, really important information uh, to uh, appreciate and to corroborate the history of learning difficulties or neurodevelopmental disorders uh, throughout childhood. That's critical information. Mm. And sometimes to make a um, assessment, you'd like to speak to family members or, or, or teachers? Yeah, it's, I think it's really important uh, to, and we, we very rarely have the luxury, of, but... Um, it is really important to get those school records. Um, uh, it's really important to get as much information as you can that speaks to the developmental and medical history of the individual uh, in trying to understand uh, the behaviour that they present with currently. If someone claims that they were knocked out for a period of time or... Uh uh, suffered a brain injury, well, what sort of records help there? Uh, well, if it was a serious injury, more often than not, not always, but more often than not, they will have been hospitalised, they will have been assessed in a hospital, they will have been triaged, they will have been sent, uh, seen by uh, neuro the Department of Neurology if necessary, uh, brain scans will have been conducted and um, uh, a admission and a discharge summary summarising uh, the um, the problem or the, the, the neurological condition and the treatment and management of the condition um, will be available through those hospital records. And those hospital records are really, really important in helping us to establish later on just how significant or serious the brain injury is because um, if there was an injury to the brain, there will be, uh, the, there will be an assessment of... Um, consciousness and post-traumatic amnesia. What do you look for? Well, we look for um, those, those, those numbers. We look for uh, the Glasgow Coma Scale score, um, which, may, um, which I mentioned before, 13 to 15, mild, um, 8 to, um, eight to uh, 12, moderate, and below 8, severe um, disturbance of consciousness. So if I want to get my client off a serious crime, what am I hoping for in these medical records? Well, if you think... Uh, that their behaviour can be explained by some sort of injury to their brain, you want there to be a Glasgow Coma Scale score below 8 and you want there to be a post-traumatic amnesia above one day. That's what you want. Otherwise, forget it. It's not going to stand up in court because the injury to the brain uh, cannot be considered to be that serious. When you are asked by... So a lawyer will get you, hopefully... Um, Schooling records? 
That would be the dream. Mm -hmm. If there's an injury to the brain, you want the hospital records. Hospital records if there's an injury to the brain. If there are no hospital records, there probably wasn't a serious injury to the brain because mm -hmm. if, if the injury was serious enough to put a person in hospital, um, mm -hmm. there'll be records. If the injury wasn't serious enough to put a person in hospital, probably wasn't that serious to begin with. So as with. they say, I got knocked out in a pub fight and yeah. I got up and then yeah. I kept fighting and drinking. And Wouldn't worry about it. There are always exceptions, but um, the, we're speaking generally. The general rule is if a person was knocked in a pub fight, um, uh, they were probably drunk to begin with anyway. They probably slept it out for you know hours afterwards, stumbled home once they regained consciousness. If it was serious, there would have been a bleed on the brain. They probably would have died. Um, so if they weren't hospitalized, probably wasn't that serious. Now, the exception to that is people from overseas countries where they don't have health systems that are as fantastic as our health systems here. Um, um, so in cases such as that, just because a person uh, was not hospitalized, um, can uh, is not necessarily um, suggestive of a non-serious injury to the brain. Um, so we do have to take the country and the, um, the hospital system uh, into, uh, into, into context uh, when we're trying to assess um, the significance of people of, of those injuries in people from overseas countries without the hospital systems that we have here, if that makes sense. So if I as a lawyer think that there might be, might be an issue that a neuropsychologist can help with, what do you do once we, you get our client? Okay, well, so when we, when we uh, are asked to see a client, the first thing that we do is have a look at the documentation that you give us. Uh, and we look at that documentation to see if there are any, any, if there's anything in the medical history that suggests that there has been a serious injury to the brain or a serious compromise to the development of that individual uh, throughout, uh, throughout their life. Uh, we, then, um, we then hold that information in our head, if you like, or in the back of our mind, uh, and we interview the patient, we get a history from them, um, much in the same way that you would get a history. Our focus on history taking is very much on anything that might have happened to them during their developmental period that might have impacted them neurologically, uh, and um, also um, our focus, of course, is uh, on looking or asking them and identifying anything that might have happened to them as an adult, uh, depending on their age, um, that might have impacted them neurologically also. Then uh, we um, uh, administer a whole battery of psychological tests to measure how um, they, uh, to, to, to measure the quality of their cognition, if you like. And we tend to look at um, various domains of cognition that include uh, attention and concentration, learning and memory, uh, intellectual functioning, uh, and those higher order, order executive skills. What we look at really depends on um, the history of the client. Um, we tend not to uh, test for everything. We tend to focus on areas that are suggested by the history to potentially be problematic. We also, of course, look at uh, uh, cognitive functions uh, that uh, we need to consider in answering the referral questions uh, that you guys give us. What sort of tests do you use? Um, well, they're, they're usually pencil and paper tests that measure, as I mentioned, uh, you know, attention and concentration, intellectual functioning, um, uh, 
conceptual thinking, abstract reasoning, planning and problem solving, uh, uh, visual spatial functions, for example, uh, a whole gamut of mental functions. Well, whenever you're working with a person uh, in, and whenever the, uh, an individual has uh, potential, we call it secondary gain. So if, an, and, and this is particularly, this is relevant to criminal context, it's particularly re relevant to compensation and insurance context. So if a person has an injury, uh, they might be motivated to, um, to uh, exaggerate or fabricate um, their, their cognitive impairments um, in order to obtain some sort of financial gain. And that inherently is the definition of malingering. Okay, so, malingering? so malingering uh, is uh, the deliberate fabrication of impairment for secondary financial gain, or secondary gain, typically financial gain. Obviously, it's an issue in compensation context. It can also be uh, uh, an issue in criminal context where uh, the secondary gain may not be financial, but it may be, um, you know, um, the type of sentence may, may be, you know, the sentence that the individual receives. So they might pretend to be impaired in order to get a lighter sentence, for example, or in order to um, not face trial and or not be held criminally culpable for their behaviour. Um, so as neuropsychologists, um, we uh, are trained to evaluate the amount of effort that a person puts into uh, their uh, test-taking behaviour, if you like. What's effort? So effort is motivation. How, uh, whether or not uh, a person is performing to the very best of their ability when we are trying to measure uh, a particular aspect of their cognitive functioning. So, for example, if I present somebody with a memory test um, and try to measure how effectively their memory is working, um, it would be very easy for a person who wants to pretend to be impaired to pretend not to remember anything that um, I give them during that testing session. So we have tests that are very clever. They're actually very easy for people with serious brain injuries um, to, or, or serious um, uh, dementias to be able to, to pass. Uh, they're not cognitively demanding. Even people with very serious brain injuries and very serious or advanced stages of dementia can pass easily. So if a person fails one or more of these tests that are very easily passed and are very cognitively undemanding, alarm bells start ringing and we start thinking, well, this person's probably not putting in their best effort because you're a person who's had a mild brain injury and you're failing this test that people with moderate and severe brain injuries typically can pass. So uh, we rely on a whole bunch of tests that are very easy to complete for most people most of the time. And when a person starts failing those tests, alarm bells start ringing and we start to suspect and investigate uh, the, the, the potential of symptom exaggeration or malingering. And how many tests do you use? Uh, in a normal assessment, I would use five, not, uh, not less than five or six tests of um, effort. Um, so it's, it's, um, the rule is um, that uh, a person without any, um, any, disturb, any neurological compromise, so a, a non-clinical subject, um, may fail up to three tests.
and that's okay because sometimes for unexplained reasons or for very normal reasons a person may not do well on a very easy test um, but if a normal person fails three of those very easy tests uh, it provides pretty convincing evidence that uh, the individual is exaggerating and malingering their symptoms now a person with a brain injury or a clinical populations where there is some concern about brain injury or dementia um, the criterion is lifted a little bit um, so those people um, are allowed to fail up to four tests before a diagnosis of malingering can be made but if a person fails more than four tests if a person with a brain injury fails more than four tests um, uh, that is a very very strong indicator that the individual is malingering and so that's that's the simp that's that, that's the short explanation of the assessment of malingering. It's much more complicated than that, but th those are the general rules. So put very simply, if someone is knocked out for ten minutes and claims not to be able to count to ten, what would you say? About it's highly that? unlikely because counting from one to ten is such an overlearned um, behaviour. I mean, it's ingrained in us from childhood. You know, it's so overlearned and embedded and burned into the brain that even people with the most serious brain injuries or neurodegenerative disorders, they're not going to lose that. It's, 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 it's uh, considered to be what we call crystallized intelligence. Uh, it is so ingrained that even the most catastrophic brain injuries are not going to prevent a person from being able to... Uh, uh, demonstrate knowledge of, of that information. Right. So let's, let's cut to the chase. If, if a lawyer has a client and they want help figuring out whether the client's eligible for Section 32 of the Crimes Forensic Procedure Mental Health Provisions, mm -hmm. um, how can you help? Uh, the acts um, are most, most commonly applied to individuals with developmental disabilities such as intellectual disorders um, or those, um, those genetic and congenital uh, disorders that we spoke about before. So intellectual disability is a really big one there. So if a person um, with an intellectual disability commits a crime um, of relatively minor nature, because it has to be of a relatively minor nature to, to fall within the gamut of the Forensic Provisions Act. And the local court. And the local court, of course. Thank you. Um, um, the person's behaviour or offending behaviour can very often be uh, explained by their neurodevelopmental disability or their intellectual disability. And if, if they're appropriately managed and if the magistrate is so inclined, um, uh, it's certainly very appropriate to divert that person with an intellectual disability from the criminal justice system uh, into a, a treatment and management plan rather than um, uh, hitting them or, or, or convicting them of a criminal offence and sending them, to, sending them to jail. So Section 32 of the Mental Health Forensic Provisions Act mm -hmm. uh, says that if a person's cognitively impaired, mm -hmm. what, what does that mean? Okay, well, we, we speak, so if a person shows uh, impairments in one or more aspects of their cognition, um, and again, when we speak about cognition, we're thinking about attention, concentration, memory, executive functioning, 
so those various domains of um, mental mental functioning um, that can be measured um, as cognition um, that um, would qualify under um, the under section two of the Mental Health Forensic Provisions Act. Uh, is that the, that's the main thing that a neuropsychologist is is concerned with, as opposed to suffering from mental illness? Yeah, look, suffering from mental illness. I mean, we do do quite a, a lot of those um, in my practice, um, but really, mental illness is the you know is rightfully the expertise of the psychiatrist. Um, psychologists um, are much better placed and more appropriately trained to measure impairments in cognitive functioning that might be relevant under the Act. Yeah, most definitely. Can you uh, give a opinion in your reports about whether a crime is related to cognitive impairment? Absolutely, I think so. Absolutely, and we're often asked to. Well, it's about establishing the nexus between the cognitive impairment and the offending behaviour, uh, and that that is what the you know the, the aim of the assessment very often is. Uh, it's not it's not up to uh, the psychologist whether it be a clinical, forensic, or, clin or clinical neuropsychologist to answer that ultimate question for the, for the court because that's, that's a fact-finding matter and it's rightly the, the domain of the, the judge or the jury. Um, but depending on, depending on where the case is at, um, certainly it is very much the job of the, the psychologist, whatever um, field of, or whatever, whatever, whatever area of expertise they might come from, is to establish the nexus between the psychology and the offending behaviour. And what sort of examples can you give there about um, where, where it might be said that someone's cognitively impaired and there might be a strong nexus between okay. that impairment okay. and the offending behaviour? Okay, well, very often, uh, my, and most commonly, I would have to say in my forensic work, um, uh, the, um, um, I would argue probably that the effects of um, um, uh, brain damage or neurological impairment uh, tend to be more subtle, and rather than being causal factors, they, they tend to be predisposing factors. Uh, that contribute, that predispose the individual, if you like, to, to engaging in the disinhibited and volatile and emotionally reactive behaviours that might lead to, for example, violent offending behaviour. So if there is a history that suggests reduced uh, impulse control um, or reduced, um, reduced integrity of the frontal lobes of the brain, that might lead to reduced impulse control which in turn might lead to uh, poorly controlled substance use, which might then um, predispose the individual to engaging in criminal behaviour. So the effects tend, for the most part, to be mediated by those uh, intermediary factors, if you like. Um, so I wouldn't necessarily argue that um, the neurological impairment uh, is causal, but it's it has the effect of predisposing the individual uh, to other behaviours that then become more proximal to the offending behaviour, if that makes sense. What about a tumour? Well, a tumour. Um, well, yes, um, there, is, um, there are extreme cases, and they're very important cases because what they do is really illustrate how uh, important uh, the integrity of the brain is to understanding a person's behaviour. Um, there are extreme cases where, um, for example, a tumour um, 
I think we spoke before about uh, a 40 year old man who developed pedophilic tendencies because of the growth of a brain tumor which once removed um, eliminated the pedophilic behavior and which later uh, reoccurred, um, re, um, gave rebirth to the pedophilic tendencies which once removed the second time um, also um, eliminated those pedophilic tendencies. So that's an extreme uh, but very important example of how um, uh, compromise to uh, the neurological functioning of an individual can have causal implications and relationships to offending behavior. But for the most part, for most people that solicitors and barristers and psychologists are likely to see, um, the uh, impacts of neurological compromise tend to um, be a lot more subtle and tend to be um, predisposing uh, and um, um, less proximal, if you like, to the offending behavior, but not, not, not less relevant to understanding the, the offending behavior, but less proximal to the actual offending behavior. There's a thing called fitness, fitness to be tried or fitness to plead. Um, are there certain neuropsychological issues that, that might affect someone's fitness? Uh, well, fitness is, is the way we operationalise it in New South Wales, and I think Victoria as well, and possibly other states throughout um, uh, Australia and territories, uh, is under the Dorbe uh, not Dorbe um, yeah, under the PRESSER criteria. Um, so um, what we try to establish when we, we conduct um, fitness assessments as neuropsychologists is, is whether they have the cognitive capacity, if you like, to be able to instruct their solicitor and to understand what they've been charged with. Um, so uh, cognitive functions are really important to that, a language and expressive language and idea generation and memory and um, attention and concentration and executive functioning. So all those, those uh, uh, domains of cognitive functioning are relevant to understanding and establishing if a person um, has fitness to plead and fitness to stand trial uh, from a cognitive capacity. Uh, with that said, um, a large part of fitness assessments is really um, a structured interview without neuropsychological testing um, because measurement of cognition does not necessarily map directly onto um, um, a person's ability to, um, for example, to, to perform any function uh, in life, whether it be fitness to stand trial or some other function in life. Um, there is not a one-to-one -one correlation with um, you know, a person's memory, for example, and then their ability to, to um, um, you know, uh, use their memory to assist them in a trial. Uh, it's just a, um, uh, it's, it's, a it's, it's not, there's no one-to-one -one correspondence between the behavior that we um, identify during testing and the quality of that behavior that we identify during testing 
and the ability of that person then to engage in similar types of behaviors in the real world. When we test a person as a neuropsychologist, we're doing it in a very controlled, in a very uh, artificial environment. Uh, but when a person is functioning in the real world, uh, those controls are gone uh, and, those, um, and there, are, there are many more distractions and other factors to consider that, that impact and shape on their behavior. So the point I'm trying to make here is that just because we can measure a person's um, cognition uh, in the office, if you like, during a neuropsychological assessment doesn't mean that that person is going to demonstrate an equal and corresponding ability in the community or in the courtroom down the track. Okay? It's just a measure. It just gives us an idea, a sense of what that person can do and what their abilities are. We have to take, um, so what I'm trying to say is what we measure during an assessment lacks ecological validity. It need not necessarily apply in the same way in the real world, in a real setting. But have it gives you, us a really good idea. Have you had cases um, where you've found that you don't think a person's fit to be tried? Plenty of times. Yeah. What, what type of situations? Oh, um, people who are typically in cases where people have in severe intellectual disability. And what about people being not guilty by virtue of mental illness? Does that arise? It does arise, and mental illness need not be caused by psychiatric factors. Mental illness can be, you know, if we go back to, you know, the um, McNaughton criteria, uh, for example, a person can be considered to be mentally ill if they don't know what they were doing was wrong. Um, and of course there are other prongs to that criteria. And can so, people with neuropsychological issues? Absolutely, they're completely lacking. They, if a person is impaired cognitively, they may lack that insight, lack that understanding, and even though they might know what they were doing, um, or they, they might know um, what they were doing, they might not know that what they were doing was wrong. Yeah, so they might, but also they might not appreciate the quality of their actions also. So, you know, cognitive impairment can be very relevant to mental illness defences. Mental illness defences need not um, hinge on psychiatric factors alone. They can very much hinge on cognitive and neurological factors. Right, Peter, if you could teach the judges of New South Wales one thing about neuropsychological issues, what would it be? I would make the argument that our opinions are based on objective science. Um, they're not, uh, and they're, they're grounded in, 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 um, in, in very strong methodologies uh, and, and science. Yeah, and not, not just clinical opinion, we can support and substantiate our opinions based on the tests that we use. Um, and um, I think increasingly in New South Wales certainly, and in the cases that I've worked on, uh, neuropsychological evidence is very well received by the courts generally. And if you could tell the lawyers of New South Wales what questions to ask their clients in early stages, what would they be? Okay, well, I would look for any evidence of abnormal brain development during childhood or um, brain injury during any stage of their life. Those would be the two um, overarching questions that I would ask uh, my client if I was a solicitor and concerned about cognition. Well, thank you, Dr. Peter Ashkar, uh, for talking us through all those issues. Uh, and that's it. Thank you, Will. It's been a Great. pleasure.